Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and we're going to continue talking about the wonderful uh, season we're in, Advent and Christmas. And I can't think of anyone I'd rather do it with than Ace Collins, who does this for me once or twice every year. And I look forward to it uh, all year long because it is such a joy. Uh, He's written a couple of books, uh, the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas and uh, the stories behind the great hymns of Christmas and this little book book of his, you're going to love having it on your coffee table. Almost when you pull out your decorations every Christmas, this should just be part of the decorations that come out and it can go on your coffee table. It's a perfect gift to really help celebrate with spiritual insights, some of the captivating legends and stories of the Christmas season. And it really brings uh, depth to some of the traditions that you've celebrated your whole life and you've never really understood the traditions or what what, how they came about. And it's a great conversation starter with friends and relatives when they come over to your house. But uh, always glad to have Ace on. Ace has written over 100 books. I don't know what he does in his spare time, but uh, I, I don't bother to ask. Ace, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. And, and what a great day to talk about Christmas traditions and music. I mean, Brenda Lee has racked up number one for the second week in a row with Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. And imagine if, for those of you who think waiting for Christmas takes a long time, you know, 1958 was when that song was recorded, and 2023 is when it went number one for the very (laughs) first time. I mean, that's waiting a long time for a Christmas present. And um, knowing Brenda the way I do, and, and knowing that she cried when she found out she went number one last week and hung on this week, it is um, so much fun because, you know, you talk about the Christmas books I've written. Three of them have been on Christmas music and, and the stories behind the greatest hits of Christmas. When I wrote it in 2005, 2006, I dedicated it to Brenda Lee because she is such a joyful, upbeat, happy human being. As a matter wow. of fact, one of the great traditions of Christmas is caroling. And Brenda's hilarious because her kids and grandkids and great-grandkids cannot open presents until they've all gotten in their various cars and driven around the neighborhoods and caroling. So uh-huh. imagine looking out your window and seeing Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Brenda Lee, who currently has the number one hit in the country, caroling to you on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Ace, before we start, I, I just want to, Wyatt and I both want to extend our sympathy, and I want all of our listeners to know that you uh, a month ago lost your your dear wife Kathy, and we both Wyatt and I watched a portion of the service that was online and available. And I got to tell you, it was just heart wrenching and beautiful. And what a beautiful tribute! And you were so masterful and so loving. And um, just to think that you're back on the air with me a month after losing your your wife is just amazing. And it just means so much to us. And uh, I just want you to know. How sorry I am that you lost your um, your beloved. I, this will no doubt be the most difficult Christmas season of my life, having yeah. written 12 or 14 Christmas books and everything else, and everybody comes to me for Christmas 
stories and 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 the Christmas spirit. But as hard and difficult as it is when you lose somebody who just loved Christmas the way that Kathy did, you continue to look for the joy in the season. Mm -hmm. Now, that's more difficult in my case. And uh, for those of you who are out there, you can, I've been sharing some thoughts on on going through the grieving process on one of my Facebook pages, but it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's a particularly a difficult thing to do at this time of year. But if you file it away, if you put it away, if you basically package that joy up and stick it in a closet somewhere, then you're dishonoring not only uh, everything that Christmas stands for, you're also dishonoring the loved one who who loved Christmas so much and who shared that joy so much. Mm. So, you know, when you're talking about these traditions, um, Christmas traditions and Christmas songs are a time machine. They're unlike anything else in the world. Uh, We never have another time of the year in which things come back universally to all of us and and bring back fresh memories of things that happened 30 or 40 or 50, 60 years ago. And we can remember them in detail because of hearing a song or seeing a certain tradition, like a blue light on the Christmas tree always reminds me of my grandmother who only had blue lights on her trees. And there was a reason for that. Uh, hearing a specific song, like at the Carpenter's Christmas song, reminds me of of my wife. That was her favorite Christmas song. Uh, seeing a cantata reminds me of different times in my life that I ever sang in them or watched Kathy or some of my other relatives singing them. Um, there's no time that takes us back to those moments and makes them as fresh as Christmas is. So even if you've lost a loved one during this time, you also reattach yourself to that loved one when you hear certain songs or or embrace certain traditions. Uh, It doesn't make the pain go away, but it does awaken you to the fact that you need to be a part of sharing the same joy, the same magic, uh, the same spirit of the season that those who went before you shared. And so... In this particular case, it might be a little more difficult, but perhaps perhaps because it's more difficult in the long run, and I won't know this till after Christmas is over, it also might be more rewarding because you've had to reach deep, pull from your the depth of all of your emotions, and then to latch on to memories that are special. As a matter of fact, what I'm doing this year is I'm actually, whenever a memory comes back of Christmas or other times of my life, I'm actually writing it down and and I don't want to lose those memories. So I'm writing them down so that I remember them because when you're raw, like you are right now, you remember those memories uh, in much greater detail than you do when you are separated by months or even years Mm -hmm. from them. So I think it's important to journal, which is one of the things that I'm doing and sharing bits and pieces of those journal journals on uh, Facebook. People tell me they're sharing them a lot and telling me it's helping. You know, I, I didn't want to do it. And then I had a couple of my friends who are counselors said, you really need to share what you're thinking and what you're feeling because it's important. And and so we're doing it. But, you know, uh, Kathy unexpectedly died on November 5th. That was a Sunday afternoon at three. Um, within two hours and 45 minutes, college kids were at my house for Sunday night home group. We feed between um, 
50 and 75 college kids every Sunday night. The food was already ready. We were ready for it. Wow. Uh, Catherine's death was not expected. And we went ahead and had it and didn't tell them what had happened until after it was all over. We oh didn't want to ruin the joy of, and the fun they had each and every Sunday night at this wow. house by by dropping anything unexpected. Now, because she was one of their many of their professors, we knew that they would find out the next day via email, and we thought that was unfair. So that night we shared um, with them what had happened and and got together and mourned some. I got together and talked some. But we went forward, and and for those out there who are who have lost loved ones, uh, each experience is different. Mine is going to be different than yours. Uh, the thing that I think we need to do, if you are one of those, is find somebody you trust and talk to them. It doesn't have to be a counselor; it can be a friend, somebody who'll be honest with you and who wants to listen. Share those memories, and if you're a, if you are not someone who's lost someone, but you know someone who's lost loved ones. Don't say how you doing or how you feeling. Instead, walk up and just talk to them and say, man, I can't imagine what you're going through. That opens up the door for them to talk to you and share with you and getting those emotions out and sharing how they really feel and, and being there for them to listen to that and then maybe share some memories of that loved one with them as well uh, is a part of the healing process. And I think too many of us who have never been, who have never been in a situation of losing someone, back off and give that person time because we don't know what to say. Knowing what to say is not important. It's it's knowing how to listen and respond that is important. And, and so think about that. Don't try to say, I know how you feel. You don't. Instead, open it up and let them tell you how they feel, which is pretty much what I've just done. <laughs> yeah, you and you did it beautifully, really. Ace, Ace Collins is my guest and his wife, Dr. Kathy Collins, just passed away November 5th. And I'll tell you the two-second conversation I had with myself in my head when I heard that, the news. I thought, oh, well, maybe Ace won't want to come on the show this year. And in the second second, I said to myself, no, it's Ace Collins. He's coming on the show. <laughs> well, so, we did the home group that night. We've done the home group ever since. I yeah. have not missed an event those college kids have been in. Yeah. Um, you've got to continue to... Yeah. To, to go out and do things you can't withdraw from life. No, uh, if you do, then it's a disservice to the person who you were so active in life with. Yeah, it's a, you're a remarkable man. Um, so, Ace, thank you for that, uh, sharing that. That's beautiful. When you had mentioned that your grandma only liked blue lights, can you talk a little bit about the, the reason behind that and the, and, and the colors of Christmas? Yeah, the colors of Christmas. Uh, we don't really think about the colors of Christmas today, but they were very important in history. Uh, green, and we'll talk about trees later, but green represents an evergreen, uh, and something that never dies. So, so green represented everlasting light. If you, if you look at a white light or, uh, uh, that light represented the light that came into the world, the pure light that came into the world when Christ came into the world. If, and th you know, these, these were very important to people back in the 14, 15, 1600s in the middle and dark ages, these, these symbols of light. Purple represented royalty, and of course, Christ was the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. And so, to them, if they had some a purple bow on something, it was representative of that. Uh, red represented the blood of Christ that flowed from the cross and the redemptive blood of Christ. And so, that was important because that's an important element of Christ's life. And then blue represented love. Um, and my grandmother always decked her trees out 
with blue lights to represent the love that she felt being a Christian from a from a God that she obviously worshipped uh, and, a, and, a, and a savior that she believed in, but also the love that she transferred to her family each and every year through gifts and through presents and through decorations and through making making Christmas very, very special. So of the nine full-size trees, we have trees, nine trees that are over seven feet in our house that are decorated. One of them is always decorated with blue lights to remind me of, of my grandmother. And when I see those lights, man, I can smell the aromas coming from oh, the kitchen for that Christmas meal. My grandmother also, by the way, always made enough for three or four more and when she found out our family was big and they came in but when she found out that there were people whose kids couldn't come in that year for christmas or who had lost someone so they wouldn't anybody christmas to be there for christmas dinner she invited those people all in as well and she always had extra presents underneath the tree for the guests that she brought in mm-hmm. Now, Ace, I don't know if I get you a second time or not in December. I think Wyatt had said that. There's you a... do, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. good, good, you do good. next week, yeah. Oh, good, 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 because I, I didn't know how I was going to pace myself today because uh, both of your Christmas books, the story behind the best love songs of Christmas and the stories behind the, and the some of the traditions, are they're both such wonderful books. Well, and, if, and if you actually, and if you love the music, because there weren't enough pages to get all the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas in the first book, there's another bestseller called More Stories Behind the Best Love Sons of Christmas. Then they asked me to do another one after that that became a bestseller as well, which was Stories Behind the Greatest Hits of Christmas. And so all of those three books are books that have become kind of traditional books. A lot of them are read during cantatas and during large orchestra performances. And I hear from people all over the country who say, well, you're, we're, they're using your book with such and such an orchestra in Atlanta or you know, or San Antonio or places like that. And it's always a thrill to find out that that your work is not only uh, being enjoyed by individuals who are reading it, but it's being shared by by great and, and large groups as well. I, um, I've been in front of many orchestras telling these stories before. And it's just, you know, it, it's a part. It, it is, if you know this, the story about why you're doing something, if you know initially where the Christmas tree came from and why we use it, and what it stand, what it stood for back then, and what it can stand for today. If you knew that the first hundred thousand years of the church or more, most times if you went to church, you saw Christmas spelled Xmas. And if you know the reason behind that, you can actually turn that around. And if you see an Xmas and 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 show them how that actually stands for Christ at Christmas, it's not taking Christ out of Christmas. Hmm. And he, all of those different things, I, I think help us make Christmas more meaningful, not for ourself, and sharing those things makes Christmas much more meaningful for someone else. Mm-hmm. Ace Collins is my guest. You can learn more about him at acecollins.com. We're going to continue to talk about the stories behind not only some of the great traditions of Christmas, but the stories behind the songs and hymns of Christmas. So if you have a particular favorite you would love the history on, I don't think you're going to be able to stump Ace so you can you can send it over to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. You've probably heard me talk about hope quite a bit 
this season, and I think it's because we need to hear more about it. We need to encourage one another with hope. We need to build one another up with the hope that we have in Christ. And if you are feeling lonely or maybe you are having periods of disappointment or despair and you need hope, we want you to know that you can always come to God's word for hope. Hope will always be there for you waiting. And if you are struggling to make it to the next moment, I want you to be able to text the word HOPE to 877-933-2484. So glad to be back with Ace Collins. We're talking about Christmas songs, traditions, and we're going to continue this uh, discussion. If you've got a favorite Christmas song, you'd like to know the history on it, I think uh, Ace will probably handle it for you. 877-933-2484. Now, Ace, the Hallelujah Chorus... Is that like the most powerful piece of music ever written? You know, I, I think how powerful it is is going to be based on your personal perception. I, I think that it is per, perhaps of all of the what I consider classical music that's out there, uh, particularly oratorios, the Hallelujah Chorus is absolutely one of the most moving pieces of music ever written. Um, it was written by, you know, George Handel. Um it was written, you know, about three, four hundred years ago by a man who literally was the Elvis of his time. And when you look at at Handel and you think about him and think about what a superstar he was, you don't understand that when he wrote this song, he was he, he was past his fame. Mm-hmm. He, oh, he's one of those guys you walked up to and say, "Hey, didn't you used to be George Handel?" <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I have people in the entertainment business who talk to me about that all the time. They go into a store and they they haven't had a hit for twenty years, and they say, "Gosh, didn't you used to be so and so?" Well, that's that. Handel was not only that; he was also broke. He he was up to his ears in debt. He was afraid to answer the door of the little bitty shack he lived in, afraid it was going to be somebody who would drag him off to a debtor's prison. Uh, he got a uh, letter one day from a friend of his named Jennings, who who was eccentric. I mean, nobody listened to him because his ideas were too wacky. And he suggested to Handel write an oratorio about um, the coming of the Messiah and base it all on Old Testament scripture. And he even cited the scripture. Uh one, oratorios were out of style. So Handel was 20 years, it was 20 years too late for this idea. But he had nothing else to do. So for the next 17 days, he actually wrote it. And then a few weeks later, got an invitation to go to Ireland to lead a small group of singers and, and musicians to raise money for a, a charity hospital. He went as much to escape the debtors as he did to, um, you know, to go and appear somewhere. Uh, there wasn't much money in it, but there was more in it than he was going to have if he had stayed home. Uh, he got there and performed the Messiah the very first time. And the reception was so good, it got written up in London newspapers. So when he came back from London, suddenly everybody wanted to see what Handel had written again. And he performed this in one of the four or five performances into it, uh, the King of England, James, arrived. And and actually, when he got to the part of the Hallelujah Chorus, stood up. And of course, when the King stands up, 
everybody stands up. And so they all stood up and that became one of the traditions for uh, it saved Handel's life, literally. I mean, he was he was sick. He he was aging quickly. He had almost lost his eyesight. It made him a star again. Wow. And he once again became the star. But what it also did was gave us a piece of music that uh, 40, 50 years later was being performed at Easter and continued to be form- performed at Easter for decades to raise money uh, for charity. Well, it was so successful at Easter, they knew that people were even more generous at Christmas, and they moved it to Christmas about 50 years ago. And ever since that time, it has become a Christmas tradition, even though technically Handel never intended it to, to be a Christmas piece. He saw it more as a as a uh, an Easter piece. And that we continue to stand at the Hello You course. I think the greatest lesson in all this is uh, Handel was a used up guy who everybody had written off and forgotten about. He literally was because he was broke and starving. One of the least of these that Christ talked about in Matthew 25, 35 through 40. And yet the least of these guy Handel wrote a piece of music that has raised more money at Christmas for people who really are the least of these mm. than any other piece of music ever composed. It's just fantastic, um, Ace. I think I've seen the placard outside the church in Ireland. I think I took a mm-hmm. picture of it where that, where it was performed for the very first time. Yeah, and it, it's just, you know, it, it's unfathomable how things work. And that, that's why you have to believe there's a di- divine touch on these things to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, you go back a little over 200 years and, You've got a you've got a priest who's in a panic on Christmas Eve in a little town in Austria, Obendorf, and he's in a panic because the organ won't work, and he's built his entire Christmas Eve mass around the organ. Now, you would think he would adapt, but this is a very young priest, and this is the first time he's ever been in charge of a Christmas Eve service, and he bases it on music, and the <laughs> organ will not play, and he runs across town in the snow to his best friend. His best friend is a school teacher. And and he talks to the school teacher in a panic, and you can just hear him going. You can just hear him rattling, going. We're gonna go to it, and and the school teacher calms him down and says, "Okay, I'll play guitar." And the priest explains, you know, Joseph Moore was the priest, and he explains, "This stuff can't be played with a guitar; it has to be played with an organ." And that's when Gruber said, "Okay, let's come up with something else." So Franz Gruber calmed him down and said, "Why don't we write something?" And that's when Moore. Remembered that for three years before he had visited his one of his uncles and walked through a forest on a cold winter's night and came back and sat down and wrote a, wrote a poem called Stilly Nacht. Mm. He actually went back to his office and found that poem. How many of us can write something once, put it away, and find it three years later? Yeah, he did. He gave it to Gruber, who wrote music for it. And that night, Stilly Nacht, Heilige Nacht, or Silent Night as we know it, became the song that saved the Christmas Eve service in this Obendorf, Austria church. Well, we wouldn't know that song today, except somebody had to come and fix the organ. And by the way, mice didn't eat the bellows. You've seen that and heard that all your life. No, it was just an old organ. And and when the guy came by to fix the organ, he said, you know, hey, what'd you do for music on Christmas Eve? Uh, The priest picked up and played Silent Night for the man who wrote down the lyrics and the melody. And 30 years later, this priest, who's pretty much forgotten about this song, 
now as a middle-aged man, he is walking through a city, I believe it was Cologne, Germany, and he hears his song coming from a cathedral. He walks in to find out what happened. How did they know Silent Night? And over time, he discovers that the guy who fixed the organ became the Johnny Appleseed of Silent Night and taught it to everyone that he knew. And by the time the priest heard it from the cathedral, it was known all over the world and was the most popular carol even in America. Wow. And it had been translated into countless languages. It has become literally the Jesus loves me of all Christmas songs. Everybody knew it. Everybody sang it. And that is another one of those great miracles of Christmas that this song that was a stopgap measure to save a service at this little tiny church ended up becoming not the best-selling Christmas song of all time, but the most sung Christmas song of all time. And by the way, what was the name of the church in Obendorf, Austria? St. Nicholas. Mm. Wow. Can't make this stuff up, can you? No, you can't. No. <laughs> I love Silent Night. I don't think I can get through that without tears welling up in my face. Uh, it's just so gorgeous. Yeah, and one of the top 10 recordings that last time I checked at Christmas is Silent Night. Yeah. Uh, initially, Bing Crosby had a number one hit on it. Uh, the best-selling version of Silent Night of all time is Barbara Streisand's. Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. Ace Collins is my guest. If you have a question about a song or a tradition of Christmas, I bet uh, Ace will know the history on it. You can get, send a text over to us. The number is 877-933-2484. Here's a question, Ace. Is it accurate to say that God rest ye merry gentlemen can be translated God keep you strong, gentlemen. Uh, it's not inaccurate to say it that way. Okay. No. I mean, um, in truth, uh, God rest you, Mary, gentlemen, confused me as a child. Uh, it's probably the reason I wrote the, all these books. Is that, that's, that song kind of made me question why God would want happy people to sleep. Uh, it was written about five or 600 years ago in England, uh, and the word rest meant, meant back then make or keep. And so if you substitute make or keep for rest, you get God make you merry gentlemen, and it makes a whole lot more sense. But I I got some information from the National Archives through a, a university I was doing research on when I did the book that also pointed out that Mary, six, seven hundred years ago, also had an, an, a meaning that more than just happy. You know, words mean more than just one meaning if you get to various countries. And the, if you notice the British say happy Christmas to each other, they rarely say Merry Christmas. And um, Mary also meant mighty or great, and it could mean strong in that respect as well. And so we probably should be singing it, God make you mighty, gentlemen, let mm. nothing you say. Remember Christ your Savior was born on Christmas Day. It has much more meaning that way. And we also have to remember that Robin Hood and his merry men were not necessarily happy guys. They were out in a wet forest fighting a powerful enemy, but they were mighty. They were great. And so the old, old English weren't looking a, a bunch of a bunch of guys that laughed like they did in the Errol Flynn movie and the great movie, <laughs> The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. Mm -hmm. But they were looking at at people who were so powerful, they were overthrowing, you know, the the most powerful uh, armed force in the world at that time. So 
uh, eat, drink, and be mighty. God, re God make you mighty gentlemen. Uh, and Robin Hood and his mighty men is probably how we should be looking at all those things. Mm -hmm. Ace Collins is my guest. Ace, a question came in about the name of the priest. Is it, uh, is it Father Robert Moore? Joseph. Joseph Moore. Uh, M-O-O-R-E. Do you imagine M -O -O -H that's how... M-O-O-H. I, I think it's... M I'd have to go back and check. I, it may have an H in it. I think you're right. I M think it's M-O-H-R. Yeah, I think it's M-O-H-R. Yeah. Just like the actor Gerald Moore from the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. Uh, and he was about... He was in his early twenties. I okay. think he was he was eight he was about eighteen or nineteen when he wrote the poem. Wow! I'm just amazed he could find the poem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after all those years, and he's moved a couple of times, that he could actually knew where to go back and find that poem is, is you know, there's a, several le levels of miracle in that story, and that that's one of those uh, miracles as well. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Father Moore was uh, gave us Silent Night and had no idea it had spread all over the globe. I love that story. All right, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back. Lots more with Ace Collins. You can learn more about Ace at acecollins.com. And he's written so many amazing books. He's over over 100 uh, books he's authored. And right now we're talking about some of the great uh, traditions behind um, Christmas and also some of the great Christmas songs. So if you've got a question about the history behind a tradition or a song, you can text it over 877 933 Eight four. We'll be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. I look forward every December to talking to Ace Collins, and we are chatting about traditions uh, regarding Christmas and also Christmas songs. He's written a number of books, over 100, and about how many regarding Christmas? Ace, are you around 12 in that department? I think 12 or 13. We have a new Christmas children's book out this year that about a bear that has insomnia and can't hibernate, and it is the first bear to ever experience Christmas. Uh, Interesting. Brady Bear, the only bear that stayed awake for Christmas, has gotten incredible reviews, and it's a story I wrote many years ago just for my wife's elementary school class at the time, but long before she became a college professor. And she encouraged me last year to, hey, you need to actually publish Grady, and it's my favorite thing you've ever done. So uh, the timing is unique, obviously, with what had happened, but Grady is out, and uh, I think Grady's a children's book, but it works for adults. Of course I, the it adults does, yeah. that kept it ended up keeping it and then buying another one for their kids or grandkids. So yeah. it's a special book. You can go to Amazon and, and read about it and find it. And But it's Grady Bear. uh is the name of it. And it's one of the most creative things I probably have ever done. And so, yeah, so it joins the book of, it joins the the novels and then the nonfiction books I've written about Christmas now. The children's book reminds me of a story from your traditions of Christmas, which is powerful uh, because, and I'm, I don't, I'm, if this is too sensitive to bring this up, given the fact your wife, Kathy, just passed away last November 5th, uh, but the dad who had a uh, a wife who was ill yeah. and and he yeah, Bob May Bob, yeah, Bob May. May if you would tell yeah, the Bob the, May story this just yeah, takes I mean, me down I mean you know it's it's Thanksgiving uh, 
during the depression and there's a man who is living in essentially a two-room apartment uh, with his wife and his small child uh it's on the wrong side of the tracks in chicago it's a cold night and he's reading a newspaper and and his four-year-old daughter crawls up in his lap and literally breaks his heart with the words why can't my mommy be like all the other other mommies in the world and uh bob looks across at his wife evelyn who's in bed and she has had cancer for years and the child has never known her mother healthy so she's never been taken to the park to play or taken to church or shopping by her mother it's also why they live in such a low rent neighborhood is because in this tenement because all the money has gone to uh you know the treatment well bob pulls his daughter barbara up into his lap and invents a story and the story he invents the lead character has a combination of his personality and his wife's personality in it. And so the little girl liked it so much, she started asking for it every night. And Bob, who had no money for a Christmas present for his daughter, stayed up late. He was a copywriter and a graphic artist, and he stayed up late fleshing out the story and creating drawings to go with it. Well, his wife, Evelyn, dies right before Christmas, but he gives the book that he has written to his daughter anyway, and the people who are coming by to talk to the family and mourn with the family, if you will, uh, they see the book and, and Evelyn tells them all about it. And one of those there said, you really need to read the book at the company New Year's Eve party. And and he's pressed to do it and he does it. And the, and the CEO of the company comes to him and says, uh, we want to buy your rights to your book. And, and they do. And for the next six, seven, eight years, Every child that sits in Santa's lap in these company stories, stores gets an opportunity to get a copy of Bob's book. Well, a major publisher right after World War II comes to them, the company, and says, hey, we want to publish your book. And they give the rights back to Bob May. And by 1946, Bob May has the best-selling children's book in the world. Well, he's remarried. His, his wife, after a couple of years after his wife died, he remarried another woman. And her uh, brother-in-law, his brother-in-law now is a guy named Johnny Marks, who's a jingle writer. And Johnny and, and Bob get together and they write a song. And they take it to Bing Crosby because he's had four major Christmas hits. Bing turns it down. They get take it to Dinah Short, who, who's looking for a Christmas hit, and she turns it down. And then they take it to Bob Hope, who also turns it down. Now, Bob really wanted a Christmas hit because... His, his best friend Bing had all these hits. And they took it to another singer actor as well who turned it down, but his wife heard the demo record and said, Gene Autry, you got to cut the record about the reindeer no one will play with. And Gene cut it as a B-side on a great song um, as the A-side called If It Doesn't Snow This Christmas. Well, ever, all the disc jockeys flipped the B-side and suddenly the best-selling record in the, the country was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And for many years, it was the second highest selling Christmas record of all time behind uh, Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Uh, Mariah Carey has probably pushed it out of that spot by now. But the Rudolph is, you know, the a classic example of a man who had no money, who really was, as we talked earlier in the, in the program about the least of these, Bob May was the least of these. And but, and he used his own creativity to give his daughter a present, a present that could only be created out of love. Mm -hmm. And I 
And a gift given with love comes back magnified to the giver time and time again. And that was never proven anymore than with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And if let's continue the story a little bit, because I kind of opened with this when we opened a while ago. Um, Ten years later or so, 11 years later, the same songwriter, Johnny Marks, is on a beach on the East Coast watching teenagers sing and dance to Elvis songs on the radio. And he gets this idea in the summertime to write this Christmas song. And he sends it to Owen Bradley, a Nashville producer, as a demo record, figuring Owen would give it to a guy named Bobby Helms, because Bobby Helms had this huge hit called uh, Jingle Bell Rock. And Owen Bradley didn't want to give it to Bobby Helms. Instead, he gave it to Brenda Lee, who was at that time 13 years old. She cuts Rocket Around the Christmas Tree. And... It goes nowhere. It sold fewer than 5,000 copies the first year. Didn't go anywhere the second year, but by the third year, Brenda Lee was the hottest thing, hardest female artist in, in music, had had three straight number one songs, and she released it, and it climbed up the charts. It didn't make number one because Blue Christmas and others kept it out of that spot, but it consistently made number two for years, including making number two the last three years, and this year, it finally became number one after... From 1958 to 2023, sitting there underneath the radar, just at number two, rocking around the Christmas tree, has now been number one on the Billboard charts for the last two weeks. And it's a it's a wonderful little story about perseverance, I guess, that this Brenda, who I think's birthday is today, I think she's 79 today, finally has that number one hit for a Christmas song. Um, I was being interviewed last year by the biggest newspaper, one of the biggest newspapers in England, and they asked me if Mariah Carey was the queen of Christmas. And I said, no, I don't think so. I said, I still think Brenda Lee is the queen of Christmas. So Brenda kind of kind of proved me right today, uh, this week to by having the number one song and knocking Mariah Carey out of the top spot for a while. Johnny Marks also write, wrote, by the way, Holly Jolly Christmas, which means that this guy, this one songwriter, has had three of the top ten Christmas songs of all time. Wow, just Fascinating. I, I, I love the fact that after 50 years, it becomes number one, or after 60 yeah. years. 60 just, years. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, Brenda, was, Brenda was 13 when she recorded. She's six, so it's 65 years. Yeah. 65 years it took to climb to number one. Sold millions of records, just never hit number one. Yeah. And she's the, she's the oldest woman to ever have a number one song, and it's the longest. Her last number one song on, on Billboard charts was 1963. That's the longest span between number one songs, too. Yeah. Just to defend myself, when I got this job, I was told there'd be no math. <laughs> so I'm just trying to, I can't okay. do the math. Yeah. All right. Ace Collins is my guest. We are talking about traditions of Christmas, not only uh, Christmas traditions, but songs. I want to take a little break when I come back. I want to ask uh, Ace about mistletoe. I think you're going to learn a whole lot about mistletoe when we come back. It's just not for kissing. We'll be right back. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer requests with us anonymously and securely on our website at myfaithradio.com. I'm back with Ace Collins. Ace, I got a nice text from my wingman, Terry, that said, 
Uh, one of my Christmas traditions, one of my favorites is listening to Ace Collins talk about history and origins of our most beloved Christmas hymns. My condolences to Mr. Collins and sending my gratitude for the joy he gives to all through his books and stories. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Uh, words like that mean a great deal to me anytime, but especially this year. That's why I read it. Yep. So let's talk about mistletoe. The early Christian missionaries who went up a thousand years ago into Northern Europe were some courageous people. I mean, they, they were going to some barbaric areas. You know, they were they were trying to share the gospel to the Druids and the Celts and, and, and the Vikings. And they were also incredibly wise. They would look at the various concepts of, of faith that these people had and the things that had meaning in their world, and, and they would use them because these people didn't read. They would use these, these elements that you could pick up, touch, and, and, and share the gospel uh, through these, these natural tracks, I guess you would say. And, and they noticed that the Vikings, the Druids, and the Celts looked at mistletoe as a very mysterious plant. Um, after all, they kind of believed that trees died in the wintertime. All the leaves fell off, they looked dead, and yet growing out of this dead wood was this green plant that had berries on it, depending on where you were. It was either red berries or white berries. There were some that had a combination of both. And so the, to explain the story of Christ, they would pluck this mistletoe off the tree. And by the way, mistletoe was so powerful that if you were a Viking and you met another Viking band that you were enemies with in a force that had mistletoe, you couldn't fight. You had to find a way to sue for peace. Uh, that was the, that was part of the legend of the uh, mistletoe plant in that culture. So the missionaries decided if this was going to be the plant of peace, and it was going to stand for the Prince of Peace, Jesus. Uh, they pointed out that it was growing out of a dead wood. They pointed out that Christ had been crucified on dead wood. They pointed out that the green leaves proved still alive. So the cross did not kill Christ. He rose from the dead. That's what the green represented. The red berries represented his blood. The white represented the purity of Christ. When these people converted to Christianity, they took this meaning so sincerely that they would actually tack a mistletoe plant over their door to indicate that they were of the Christian faith. They would also put mistletoe over babies' beds to remind them of Christ and of prayer and to ask blessings on that child. Well, it came to mean so much that bride and grooms were married underneath mistletoe plants. This is a thousand years ago now. Wow. They were married underneath mistletoe plants to remind them as long as they had faith, they could sustain themselves through the toughest times, like the bleakest days of winter when the mistletoe plant thrived. And what happens at the end of a marriage ceremony a thousand years ago? The same thing that happens today. There is a kiss. Over the years, we've lost the original way that, that it became, was a track for early missionaries, and it's just the kissing plant now. Mm -hmm. But you know the story behind it. You can still use it the same way the, mission, the missionaries did all those years ago to explain the life of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and what that means to the world. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Ace. A question came in. Have you addressed joy to the world? We have not. And the comment is, is it, 
it's not really about Christmas. It's about the second coming, which, of course, is an event many of us are looking forward to. Is that what you understand? Well, and, if, if you, and if you think about that, the, the way they taught Advent all those years ago, you know, Advent had various stages. And one of the things you, you looked at was Christ's birth, Christ, uh, Christ being crucified, Christ's resurrection, how Christ impacted your life and how Christ impacted the world. You know, that's the way it was taught all those years ago, and also looking forward to the second coming. And yeah, Isaac Watts, this great hymn writer who wrote Joy to the World, was really inspired as much as anything else. By the way, funny story on Watts. Watts is a teenager. His dad was the preacher in the church. Watts uh, walked up to his father after a service and said, sorry, dad, this is boring. Now, he probably <laughs> said it in old English language, but he did he, and he said, what's boring about it? And he, you know, you think kids haven't changed? He said, well, the music. <laughs> we sing the same songs every week. We've got the same tunes. We only sing out of the book of Psalms. And his dad said, well, if you can do better, do something. Well, that started a career where he wrote 5,000 hymns. So obviously, he knew how to do better, and it changed the course of music as well. And so, you know, he actually studied some Old Testament Psalms 98, as a matter of fact, is what inspired it that said, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. He looked at the at the, at the the original birth. He looked at the future coming of Christ and, and combined all three of those elements and to give us joy to the world. Um, the music we sing it to was actually written by an American, uh, Lowell Mason. And, and Mason wrote the music, um, you know, in England, uh, probably almost 100, well, 50, 60 years after, the, after Watts' death. And... Uh, so it was, it was written in Savannah, Georgia, the music that we sing it to today. But, um, you know, it's an interesting fact that this guy was inspired to write music by a father who who he had insulted. And the father, in a constructive way, basically channeled that boy's rebellion into something that, that changed the course of, of, of church music uh, for hundreds of years and is still impacting church music and Christmas music to this day. Mm-hmm. Ace Collins is my guest, and we're talking about the great traditions behind some of the songs. Uh, Ace, what about the song, I Saw Three Ships? I, I always thought, that's an interesting song. What, what can you tell us about are, that one? There are all kinds of, of of songs that we sing that are so biblically inaccurate. Um, I mean, you think about all of the all of the Christmas carols that have the wise men and the, and the shepherds arriving at the same time. Right. And I, I'm sorry, you know, if the wise man's name was Bart and the shepherd's name was was George, they never met each other. You know, the wise men ra- arrived months, maybe even two years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and but that, you know, you look at all these songs. Well, they were written by peasants who didn't know the real history. Most of them couldn't read. And and, and Protestant churches, by the way, didn't even start singing, uh, celebrating Christmas until the mid 1800s. They certainly didn't have Christmas music as a part of their lexicon in their in their hymnals. They 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 pretty much ignored Christmas. The Lutherans didn't, and the Catholics didn't. But most Protestant faiths ignored it. And we'll get into that another time on why that was uh, uh, done. But the peasant who wrote, um, and we don't know his name, we don't know much about him. But we've got to figure the guy who wrote three the the song about the ships. Who saw the ships as sailing? Yeah, and, and was—I mean, he was picturing an ocean voyage to the Holy Land. He—he he was picturing, so he had to be a, a seaman. Okay, and in his understanding of of travel, it was not about donkeys. It was not about 
burrows. It was not about camels. It was about ships. So he basically had all the participants in, in this incredible pageantry of Jesus' birth arriving via the sea. And he saw the ships sailing, and it reminded him of, of Christmas. Is it biblically accurate? Of course not. Mm-hmm. But it was such a great song that it has it has remained an important part. You know, you think about the tens of tens of thousands of carols that have been written over the years, and it's one of a hundred that we still sing. Yeah, so I mean, true. It, it, there, so there was something catchy about it, and it may be because the Brits and the Americans, and that's where this song really took root, were were at the time time that Christmas music really took off in both countries in the 1800s, were both seafaring people. And the seas were how everything came in and how everything came out. So people who were in those two countries could identify with anything that was sea-related because that's how they got their goods, that's how they got their um, their food, and it's also how they traveled. Yeah, Ace, I hate to do this to you because we only have like two minutes left, but can you go through the 12 days of Christmas in two minutes? No, I can't. But I, didn't I, can't think, I didn't think so. <laughs> each one, each one, we don't know. Let's, for say, let's save that for next time. How's that? Let's say that. Yeah, you know, it's a code. It's it's a, it's a code song. Whether it was a code song written before, yeah, uh, or the code was established after it was written or before it was written, we'll never know. But it's a code song. Okay. How about Yule logs in ninety seconds? Yule logs are pretty easy. I mean, they were supposed to burn twelve days. The families in in old England would cut down the Yule logs. They would pack it with spices, and it represented everything from uh, Christ being crucified on the cross. The sweet spices were. That were they put in when they burned it for the 12 days represented uh, the sweetness of Jesus and his life. Uh, and and it was something that was kept going throughout the night to represent the light that came into the world when Jesus was here. It was an important tradition for years. They would always take a splinter from that wood and, and, and keep it to light the next Yule log with uh, the next year. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that... Really, once again, like the first light on the Christmas tree and everything else represents the light that came into a dark world and what Jesus meant to that world when he arrived. Yeah. So great to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to another opportunity around the 18th of December to continue this discussion. Ace, have a wonderful, uh, busy December, and God bless you with all that you're going through and mourning the loss of your dear Kathy. Look for joy. Amen. And as Kathy would say, tell everybody out there, one, four, three, that's what she signaled and texted everybody, and that meant I love you. Oh, beautiful. Thanks, Ace. All right. That's our show for the day. Ace Collins has been my guest because he's written 12 books about Christmas. It might be easier just to go to your favorite bookstore. Maybe it's Amazon and just type in his name, Ace Collins, and all his books will show up. Have a great night, everyone. I look forward to our time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.